Hi everyone, welcome to the Liberal Arts Endeavor, a podcast by Michigan State University's College of Arts and Letters. Here, we're dedicated to driving a continued conversation about the importance of public presence in an online space. If you're a returning listener, welcome back. This season, we're refocusing on the value of humanist perspective in the digital age and slowing down a bit to foster a culture of care and listening. On each new episode, we follow Chris Long, Dean of the College of Arts and Letters, as he takes us somewhere new to meet arts and letters students and faculty where they work. Today's episode features Divya Victor, Assistant Professor of Creative Writing and 20th Century and Contemporary Transnational Poetry and Poetics here at MSU. Dean Long went to speak with her at her home. Here are Divya and Chris. Divya Victor, welcome to the Liberal Arts Endeavor podcast. So glad to be here. Thanks for asking me. Well, tell us about where we are. I'm really grateful that you've opened your your house to (laughs) to us. And one of the things we've talked a lot about is trying to engage with our faculty in the spaces that are meaningful to them and and where they do their most meaningful work. Yeah. Um, We are in the home that I share with Josh Lamb, my husband, and our daughter, Zameen. Um, This is a mid-century ranch, Um, and one of the things that I find fascinating about this house is that it's it's split. We live upstairs and we work downstairs, and so Mm. our work, our writing, our thinking, our collaborative work together um, is the foundation of the kind of life that can happen um, above ground, um, above grade in some ways. Um, It's the kind of implicit foundation, and... You know, Josh and I have worked in a shared study for a decade together through our dissertation writing, through our first jobs as lecturers, and then now as assistant professors. So I think this, the fact that my office, my writing space is in my home is essential. It's like non-negotiable for mm-hmm. me. I don't write, like many of my colleagues write in you know, cafes mm-hmm. um, or in their MSU campus office, but I actually couldn't do that because of the nature of my work and... Um, I guess the kinds of acts I undertake while writing, like they couldn't happen in public. Tell us a little bit about those acts. I mean, what you're describing and the way you're describing it sounds so generative. Sounds like I mean, I'm in, I'm I, we were down in the office, and yeah. you can really feel the energy there, and also the sense that there's it's foundational. But I often think of that in organic uh, terms of mm. it's really generative mm-hmm. of ideas that growing up through the through the space of the mm-hmm. house and then mm-hmm. um, moving through space in that way so did, what, what what kind so you worked together in the space mm-hmm. at the same time sometimes right. sometimes individually separate and... we, we often work at the same time because we, we have a nine to three work writing day um, at best actually it's 9 to 11 it's email day then yeah. it's writing day <laughs> so the... you do email first <laughs> yeah unfortunately no, I think you should <laughs> I always talk about, you know, reserve your, whenever you're most intellectually alive for the things that are most intellectually important That's to true. you. And, but maybe you are in the late afternoon or, the, you know, alive. So. Yeah, I, I, I can write almost any time of the day. I'm, I'm okay. fortunate that way. Um, the, the poet in me really loves an immediate audience. I'm not sure how Josh feels about being that immediate audience. Um, but the writer in him, the scholar in him, loves a kind of cross-referencing modality. So that's like, this is the claim, do you think it flies? Mm. This is the page, how is it landing? Mm-hmm. Um, that is a constant conversation that we have. So to be each other's first readers is actually fundamental to my practice. Um, and 
the idea that the work is the foundation of living is, is of course, I figure out my political beliefs, my spiritual beliefs, my beliefs about my own identity in the poetics. Then I raise my child mm. through that. Mm -hmm. It's not the other way around. Or there's no split between those things. It's not like I have some sort of set of values that I'm imparting to my child on this first floor right. um, that come from an external space. Yeah. Um, but in terms of the acts I undertake in, in that space that I couldn't undertake in a cafe, for example, um, last week I was working on a piece for this manuscript, Curb, um, which is a book of poetry. And that piece is about imagining humans as milestones, right? So you have uh, an architectural, urban, or rural feature called a milestone that just says X number of miles to a destination, or you have traversed this many miles. But I had to imagine how does that square with what we think of as developmental milestones mm. in human life, right? The first, first time a child can lift a spoon to the mouth, that's a milestone. First time a toddler can walk backwards, that is a, a very fleshy, yeah. uh, <laughs> embodied milestone. So I had to actually try becoming a milestone for a long while. And it's a stress practice. It's, you squat and you, you, you place your arms over your head and, and you try how that would feel, hmm. just as... Because how are you going to write about this question if you don't try it out? On the most literal level, then from that literal practice comes the conceptual work that undergirds the entire poem. I could not do that in a cafe. Hmm. That would be awkward. <laughs> that, that would make, I think, the people around me somewhat uncomfortable. Yeah. But you know, it's also important that I write in what I'm most comfortable in. And so it's, it's stretchy pants and socks and shirts that don't poke me anywhere. Mm -hmm. Um, and because I write about um, trauma endured by South Asian communities, there is a lot of, uh, there's a frankness to being with the material I'm composing, uh, being able to cry when I need to, being able to laugh, being able to call my mom like that while I'm writing. Yeah. Those things cannot happen in public spaces. They have to be in safe space like my home. Yeah. One of the things I appreciate about you and your work is the intentional way that you think about everything. Mm -hmm. I mean, you uh, quickly mentioned this amazing book, Curb, which I'd mm -hmm. like to talk more about. Right. But I, I want to ask first about the, the intention that you bring to the uh, digital presence that you have. And I was able to sort of look online. I got a sense of Curve through that, which is, and it's been actually interesting seeing the book in its material reality, mm -hmm. because the, the, digital, the digital gives you a sense of it, but right. it really doesn't even begin to do any um, justice to the, the beauty and the integrity. Mm -hmm. And I want to use that word intentionally, because mm -hmm. I really feel like the way that um, you and your collaborator have thought about how the book is crafted, how the words and the pages and the different dimensions mm -hmm. of the book come together, um, have a kind of integrity mm -hmm. that, that is infused with intentionality. Right. Right. Um, I think, you know, I, I come very belatedly to being a kind of poet who's comfortable with um, digital presence, especially promotional presence. So I have worked with sort of new media comportment for a long time uh, in, in various ways, but it's, it's the idea that a website might exist to tell people, like, go buy my book, is, <laughs> is something that makes me very deeply uncomfortable. 
But when Aaron Koek, who is the printer and designer at the Press at Colorado College, came to me with an idea for making a book together, we agreed early that we would confront the fundamental problem of book arts, which is that it is, um, it's a fine art that's very expensive and doesn't always offer access to folks who need it the most right away. Um, and so the digital presence was the first way in which we could address many people having access to the text hmm. and seeing images of it so they could teach the book and so that they could get a sense of its material, well, get the most superficial sense of its material qualities, even if the libraries and the institutions that were teaching the work could not afford the book mm -hmm. right away. Aaron and I have also worked to create a kind of, uh, like a supplementary um, shadow copy of the book as a, like a sort of beautifully designed PDF that just circulates for free to students in places where um, they want to teach the work. So students don't have to pay anything at all to encounter the poetry, but they can have a sense of the work itself, yeah. of the book itself. Yeah. So it's this idea of digital presence as being um, a pluralizing rather than masterful or mastering yeah. space for the work. Yeah. You said when you were talking about the book and showing me the book yeah. uh, a few minutes ago that there, the one of the things about an art book is that it's a, it's a concept right. and a concept. So, and you can get a sense of the concept mm -hmm. through the digital. Mm -hmm. You're not getting the full texture of it. You're not. Right. But could you talk a little bit about the concept of this yeah. book? Yeah, you know, uh, <laughs> a lot of poetry in the market today, um, or a lot of poetry that makes up the institution we call poetry, is contained in codexes that are linear. So they're like collections or they're selections and there's 50 poems, 100 poems. And these poems are usually discrete. So one poem ends and then another one begins. Sometimes they're related to each other through themes. I have never written books like that. I have written books as objects always. So I've never written a collection of verse. <laughs> I have always written a book. Hmm. Um, so the unit of the book as a holding concept rather than a passive vehicle has been important to me since the very first time I wrote uh, a book. <laughs> or, mm -hmm. yeah, so Things to Do With Your Mouth is the first book that did this. Because I'm very uh, invested in how readers behave when they are holding a book. Mm -hmm. How they peruse, how they flip, how cognition and sensory experience create meaning together. Mm -hmm. So that reading is not the cerebral act, but a sort of sensual, sensory, embodied act. And there is a difference. If the book weighs more, there is a different experience. If the book is too large to put in your pocket, you're going to behave with it differently mm -hmm. than a small, you know, green integer book that can slip into your pocket, which carries sort of punk ethos, you right. know? Um, so, so to go back to your question about how working with an artist actually enables a certain concept, right? Um, we were going to work on a book about how immigrants and descendants of immigrants, particularly immigrants coming from the South Asian um, subcontinent, how they were able to live, survive, and thrive in semi-public spaces. And one of the questions we had was like, you know, how? how did we announce ourselves as strangers or foreigners in a city back in the 80s before we had you know, 
all the kind of technology we have. And it was just this idea of opening up a map in the middle of New York City, yeah. this awkward, unwieldy uh, task that like makes you so legible as a right. stranger, as an outsider. And we said, let's make a book of poems that was as, comp as, as unwieldy, as large, that it took up so much space that your body was highlighted when it was reading it. Mm. Your body was so pronounced when you had to read it. Nothing that you could slip into a purse. Let's make it big and awkward. Mm -hmm. Because this is an awkward conversation about xenophobia and racism and, and the death of people who might look like you. So let's make this a very pronounced reading act. Mm -hmm. Let us make the behavior of reading a very visible act. And so when you and I opened up this artist book curve on my fairly large dining table, yeah. We had to circle it. We had to walk around it. Yeah. We had to bend over it. We had to mm -hmm. uh, really stretch our bodies in, yeah. in, a, in a way that was uh, we're not accustomed to, right? Right, yeah. yeah. You had to move the table. You had to move the table. And I was reflecting, I'm reflecting back on the experience is a recognition that there was no way really for me to be comfortable with yeah. it. Exactly. Because I think the way we engage books behaviorally and physiologically now is in, a, in this posture of either comfort or obedience, right? So yeah. you think about like stock images of how people read. It's like, it's, a, it's like a lovely white lady in a white sweater on a couch. And she's like, got right. tea. Right. And she's like, I'm so relaxed with this you know, Oprah Winfrey book club number or right. whatever. Or it's the studious pose of the, the, the child intentionally poring over a book and it's mm -hmm. effort. They're both acts of obedience, actually. Mm -hmm. Even comfort is a kind of obedience. Yeah. Yeah. So I think producing discomfort in the reader with this rough material is essential. Um, so now, you know, there's a different set of questions of like when this book in its expanded version becomes a paperback or a trade edition, you know, then right. what kind of comforts do I have to confront and disrupt through just a, a codex form? that is familiar to readers. When you're reading a, a book, not, let's say not a, I mean, because there's also different kinds of reading, reading of for pleasure, reading right. for, for right. studying. And, but when you're reading a, a book that you're working on either teaching or for your, for your work, for mm -hmm. your scholarly work, do you read with a pencil? Do you write in it? Do you oh, do? No. Uh, this is, going to, be, <laughs> this is a, going to be very revealing and embarrassing answer. Um, um, as a person who's friends with a lot of artists and, and book artists, uh, my my behavior with <laughs> mass market books is abhorrent and despicable. <laughs> and <laughs> I write, I highlight, I dog ear, I make a mess of it. I like, I use terrible things as bookmarks. You know, the other day, you know, Josh found like a potato chip <laughs> used as a bookmark. It's it's really very okay, bad. Yeah. I'm badly behaved with books. Um, okay, but I mean, the <laughs> the the part of that is is maybe pushing back against a passivity. Yes, I mean it's it's mine. I get to yeah. use it. Um, you know, I I grew up in a culture which where we had to like uh, wrap our school books in brown paper and then put plastic cover over them. But I was also the kind of kid who ate the round paper throughout when I was bored in my lectures right. because I could, because yeah. nobody told me that that's weird. And then that's, I literally ate my texts. Wow. And then, you know, that's for all the kids listening, that's one way to become a poet. Just eat your books. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I think um, truly understanding the, the sacrosanct, the beautiful, the pure work of designing books 
also then comes with being able to look at an object and say, I can engage with this with some irreverence, mm -hmm. with, with a kind of mischief, with a kind of ability to destroy the rules around engage, engaging with that object. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I mean, I was thinking we were talking a little bit about the the book on my book on Plato and Socrates, right. and one of the things that the 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 decision that Plato made to to write and to engage readers in a mm -hmm. dialogue through written text that was somewhat static and also deployed strategies to make that static text a little bit more alive. Mm -hmm led me to really think a lot more about the dialogue between the writer and the reader that unfolds when right. a book is opened. Right. So it's not, I mean, it, do, it does have to have, a book has to be read to, to live. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think we have a lot of contemporary poets, several contemporary poets, I should say, who are uh, strongly invested in that, in, I mean, in the history of the book, in the platonic history of the book, the medieval history of the book, right, which is this, uh, the book as unending form or unending act of writing. So that, that all reading has to necessarily be a writing practice. I mean, that's, that's Emerson. Yeah. Um, but I'm very moved by scribal behavior. So just thinking about how the early uh, medieval Psalters would have been reproduced by scribes. And as they were being rewritten, they were quite literally being written into by yeah. these scribes, right? right. Um, and in those acts of producing marginalia by these really lowly played, paid or not paid at all monks and scribes, I found, right, in, in my study of the medieval manuscript, I found these acts of resistance, yeah. talking back, conversing with the text, mm. disagreeing with the text. That to me is poetry. That to me especially is documentary poetry, which is my practice, or is much of my practice. The idea that you can talk back to a master document and thus interpolate it, call it into question, and change how we receive those documents. Um, that's just, yeah. And so it's the, actually the confrontation with the book object itself, the reverence around it, and the mischief we can undertake around it that informs my poetics. Yeah. yeah. The question of form and content mm -hmm. seems to be at the center, certainly right. of Kerr, right. but is it, right. was it also a central part of, of Kith, your, mm -hmm. uh, another book that you wrote? Yeah, and um, I'm a, <laughs> I think my training is very much as a, as a sort of projectivist in the sense that, as Charles um, Olson or Robert Creeley might have said, form is nothing more than an extension of content, mm -hmm. and content the extension <clears throat> of form. Um, there is no passive vessel into which the poem can be plopped or a thought right. can be plopped, like it's, it's not a jello mold, right? Um, the form has to give, become the embodiment of a spirit of an argument. Yeah. But you cannot determine the form until you understand the argument. So <laughs> they, yeah. are, they are twinned, yeah. right? Are there some yeah, I've been thinking a lot about this in terms of what I uh, talk about as performative consistency. The, mm -hmm. the, 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 the way in which the form of the scholarship right. needs to embody the content or the argument that the scholarship is, a, is, a, right. is trying to advance. Right. And the, the power of thinking about performative consistency, how the work is enacted, is tremendously interesting in a, in a digital world, in a world mm. of material culture, and as mm. we try to expand the very meaning of what scholarship is. Right. 
Right. I, uh, I that's fascinating, you know, and um, this reminds me of a conversation I was having with um, our colleague Justice Neeland, who you know you recently published his wonderful book, um, yeah. Happiness by Design, and we were talking about the process of indexing and the convention of indexing and what a pain it is. And <laughs> and I said, you know, thinking about indexing as a poet, I, I think about what a how painful it is to think about the management of information that indexing implies, right? It's um, and what happens if a poet were to index uh, a book? Like, what happens if you index a book of poetry not through an individual who is tracking, right, a series of topics or headers or concepts, but through a collective who is tracking non-objective data in a book, purely subjectively, purely sec- speculatively? Right. What would that look like? And how would it undo the control and management of the index, yes. reshape its function? Um, as a tool of knowledge circulation. Right. So, right. so um, these. I love the idea of poetry coming in as an interruption to academic uh, conventions and functions. Actually. And and what yeah. you're challenging us to think about is when you ask a question and think about a problem like the index is okay. Well, what is this thing which we sometimes hope to find in right. the back? Right. And then, you know, we have to wonder, well, what is that functioning for you as a researcher, as a reader? Right. Uh, what, what kinds of shortcuts is that providing right. you, potentially, exactly. the organization of a, an index into substantive terms and not substantive <laughs> And non-substantive terms. You made me think, well, maybe we should... Who decides that? Exactly. <laughs> Just index all the times the word and is used. Right. Maybe that should be, you know... Right. I mean, because in, in the conventional index, especially for ac- academic publications, it's based on a market and a presumed reader and the function of that reader. But poets are, we're, we question what the market does and how it defines the reader. Uh, I, anyway, poets yeah. I read. Yeah. Um, and if we are not problematizing the circuits in which books um, are trafficked, the, the, surf- the circuits of, of profitability in which books are traffics, if you're not questioning that fundamentally, then we are just writing passively into the system. Yeah. I mean, I'm speaking as a poet rather than yeah. as a scholar, but I think scholars could ask similar questions. Yes, and we can add the layer of the whole infrastructure of scholarly communication and academic That's right. uh, advancement and the university mm-hmm. and the way in which books uh, function in that economy as well. Absolutely. You know, um, I edit for a... Journal of Poetics that's published by the University of Pennsylvania called Jacket 2. And Jacket 2 is an open access journal for scholars and poets. And one of the first things, one of the first aspects uh, of professional life that I discussed with our colleagues here was rewriting bylaws in the English department to recognize and acknowledge the importance of journals like Jacket 2 because they do allow for intellectuals and scholars um, outside the identity of, right, like tenure stream faculty in R1s to be uh, be engaged with the field. And it was radical what we were able to do with just that slight shift in bylaws. It's been amazing. I'm really grateful that you brought that up and also for the work that you've done in helping the department imagine mm-hmm. a more expansive sense of scholarship. We've seen the, the the work that we're doing in the college and the work that we're trying to do more broadly nationally around aligning, empowering scholars to align their values with the work that they do. It's a it's a it's a kind of extension of this mm-hmm. idea of 
performative consistency in mm. the sense that I see as a dean all the ways in which people are asked to alienate themselves from their values as a price they're paying to enter yeah. into the system. Yes. And we yes. need to, we're just going to continue to impoverish the system if we allow that to happen. So having bylaws that have a more expansive mm -hmm. vision of, of scholarship and then trying to create structures and empowering um, processes that ask our faculty, our graduate students, our undergraduates to articulate, well, what is, what values are animating mm -hmm. your work and how can those values be put into practice through the way you engage in scholarship in creative yes. activity? Yes. Um, and those values, right, don't only show up when we became so-called professionals. Right. They didn't show up just when we started grad school. Right. They, they were embedded and, and received and created from, you know, in, at the dining table with your family. Right. Like, the values are around our scholarship are embedded there. Yeah. That's where they begin, you know. Uh, Sarah Ahmed talks about this, um, and I, I think a lot about this idea that the project, the intellectual project, doesn't begin when you achieve a certain degree or are suddenly now qualified to be an expert. Your expertise begins at birth. Right. Right. And the responsibility begins at work, uh, at birth, yep. to, to take on that expertise or not, you know? Yeah. Um, and I mean, I think as an as a institution of learning and an institution that values ex uh, expanding knowledge and deepening our understanding of right. the world, we need to be a catalyst for deepening a, a meaningful life. Yeah. And that, that begins long before people arrive at the university, yeah. and it continues long <laughs> after they leave. Absolutely. <laughs> and it should also Absolutely. be true of those of us who inhabit the university as a, as a life, have chosen the academic life. Uh, and, and that's the part that I see sometimes um, falling away in the, by when the structures ask colleagues and ourselves to, to pull us away from, from the things we find most meaningful. I mean, you, you, in, in Curb, you have a, a way of capturing the administrative dimensions that, yeah. that pull us away from the human, from the mm -hmm. meaning that we really need to attend to. Yeah, and I think our role as, as folks who are embedded within the College of the arts and letters is to always retain the sense of the whole and complete person within these large structures, to always retain that sense of them. Whether that's in the way you open a meeting with colleagues, or whether it's in how we're structuring our bylaws, or then whether it's in how we're programming and curating large public-facing events. Yeah. Retaining the sense of a whole and complete person, every person. Um, that is the hard work. Yeah. It takes intentional practice every day, and yeah. it's something that I've been grateful for, for learning from you mm -hmm. how to do that and, and uh, being intentional in my own thinking about leadership and what it means to, to lead an institution like the College of right. Arts and Letters here at Michigan State during this period of oh, time. Yes. One thing I wanted to return to on your website yeah. that um, was meaningful me for for me to see was the questionnaire from Audrey Lord. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. The self, self uh, was a self questionnaire. Um, Questioning the self. Yeah, the 
<laughs> questionnaire to the self. So yeah. the Audrey Lord questionnaire to oneself. That's it. Yeah. It has a series of questions on it um, <laughs> that are, you know, it's a, there's a, it has a very interesting story. Yeah. Um, when I was teaching in Singapore at Nanyang Technological University, I had, I had actually returned to the place of, you know, when I was a teenager. So I, I grew up there and I went back to teach students um, because I felt that certain critical and poetic practices that I could have benefited the most were not already in a place uh, in place in, in that um, that nation. And I was teaching in this creative writing program that was the first PhD granting um, program in the country. And I found that students were, and these, this is a post-colonial nation, students are primarily Chinese, Tamil, or Malay speakers. They're all either bio-trilingual, and yet they were being taught essentially European masters, uh, American poets from the 19th century, who are all Anglophone. Hmm. It was mind-blowing how limited um, the educational range was. And as a result, they didn't know how to even give themselves the, the power and the credit that they could conceive of projects hmm. that were important to them, to them, their lives, their families, their communities. So I developed a questionnaire that just translated the content of an essay by, I should say, transposed the content of an essay by Audre Lorde um, and just wrote it into a series of questions. Her statements turned mm -hmm. into questions and they always had to answer these questions first in order to begin schematizing a project. Mm. And invariably, the answers were always so revealing about the kinds of silence that they had been subjected to as individuals, right? So they, when, when Audre Lorde talks about the call to transform your silence into language and action, and that's the title of her essay, mm -hmm. that to me was the fundamental work of poetry. Transform your silence into language first and then action. Yeah. Connecting what has been submerged and silenced by hegemony, by living under supremacy, connecting that to acts of speech civic action and change by being a practicing artist. Like it, it, you know, consolidated all of that for me. And, and I've been using that questionnaire as the starting point and the ending point of all the teaching I do. Mm -hmm. 14 weeks, this is, that questionnaire is the measure of every student, every writer's growth in my seminars. I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was, really interested in that component of the website because mm -hmm. of the question that I always pose in these podcasts around the practices of self-reflection. Yeah. And really that is such a, an amazing instrument to help you move into the space of mm -hmm. self-reflection. Yeah, and, and because it was turned into a meme several years ago, <laughs> it has been circulating as, uh, as a kind of instructional form around the world, in fact, you know, institutions that um, deal with uh, folks who are seropositive, um, folks who are living with HIV, um, folks who are doing activist work around uh, Occupy, right? Mm -hmm. Like, um, or post-Occupy. Like, there have been so many workshops around the country that have used this, and I kind of, like, see that work. Like, I saw it in a poster. I saw it in a coaster. I'm not even making this up. Like, someone <laughs> put it on a coaster. I'm like, that seems uh. to defeat the purpose. Hmm. Um, yeah, but right. it's just been taken up in, in all these forms, um, some better than others, right? So, yeah. so the minute it's, you know, the minute you create this thing that can be moved away from your body and your production, yeah. you have to sort of, you, 
open it up to all kinds of uses. Like, I saw a very conservative church using that um, same document right. for to to reflect on like traditional family practices, mm -hmm. right? So that is that is part of the uh, the other side of the yeah. the power of that questionnaire. How does self-reflection and practices of self-reflection play a role in, in your work? I feel like your work is, is, is so saturated with this sort of self-reflective <laughs> right. practice right. that it's, it's um, almost redundant to ask you that question. But I do, I've been, the reason why I am interested in this is, is for, is because of what we were talking about before, namely the intentionality that yeah. one needs to bring into one's life in all its facets requires opportunities for self-reflection yeah. and and for and, and and particularly you know for me thinking just about what are the intentional practices of self-reflection that we that we have to make sure that we are nurturing that right. intentionality yeah um we could talk about this for hours i'll try to give you a shorter answer um i have a working theory that poets are trying to answer just one question their whole lives. And I mean, from the time I was a kid all the way, I've been trying to answer one question, which is how do we engage the suffering of strangers? When you see a kid fall down in the playground and there's another kid who laughs, what is your action? How are you un engaging that moment? And mm -hmm. you see a scab knee. That was like, that's me at age five. Mm -hmm. And I'm asking that through my research on the Holocaust, through my work on um, hate crimes and, and, and the politics of hate and the politics of pity right now in this very xenophobic environment. So my reflective practice always has to start with asking myself at the end of a productive phase, have I answered this question? Mm. And the answer is always not enough. You haven't answered it to full satisfaction. And so reflection for me is always this act of it has to be an act of humility, mm -hmm. an act of facing um, the incompleteness of one's work. And in that incompleteness, I need to be able to find the more particular questions yeah. right? Uh, that are the most urgent to address, because that's a very large question. How do we witness and engage the suffering of strangers? What is the particular question I can engage now? And that reflection. I undertake it in many ways. I, I mean, of course, you have to workshop your work as an artist. But I also, I talk a lot to my family about my work, who, and they are not experts. They're you know, social workers and engineers, and many of them um, haven't even gone to college. Um, but when Kith came out, my mm -hmm. previous work, I actually had, um, Josh actually had my family annotate it oh, yeah. with a pen. So going back to this idea of uh, irreverent, mischievous engagements with books, um, my mom and dad wrote into the margins of the book like scribes, wow. asking me questions, um, taking me back to memories that they have of me. They'd be like, I remember when we were there. But, but this mm -hmm. poem is about an event, and I remember when we were there, and you were wearing this dress, and whatever, you know. Wow. And my grandmother, who wasn't comfortable writing the book, told Josh uh, about these poems. So he was reading to her. She reflected. He wrote for her in this uh -huh. book. And those marginalia, those acts of marginal interruption, yeah. that kind of marginalia, was like the foundation for the impetus of Curb. Mm -hmm. And it also became the impetus for the kind of language I would use in Curb, which is, is actively, self-consciously much more accessible language yeah. as compared to my other work. So like reflection for me certainly includes talking to my family about things um, 
that go beyond the formal, go beyond the aesthetic, that go return us to the personal. Yeah. 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 The 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 manner in which there's an ongoing dialogue that yeah. unfolds in the in the margins of that <laughs> yeah. uh, that book. And uh, one of the things that I I'm always struck by is when I talk to my daughters about an event that we experience, right. their memory and their experience of it is so different from mine. Yeah. And yet it it's the same experience, or we were there at the same time, but they're approaching it from a, a totally different time in their lives and thinking about it totally differently. And I'm, I don't know, I, I mean, if I'll ever not be shocked, but I should at some point learn that it's, but it's always surprising. Wow, yeah, yeah. I hadn't noticed that component or it's interesting that they're, they're seeing that that way. Yeah, yeah. And, and there's such a, a feeling of abundance that any moment can be fractionated into so many others, yes. that there are so many interpretations. And that's, that abundance is foundational to poetry, to almost any poetry, yeah. the abundance of interpretive acts. Yeah. Yeah, but that's art. Yeah. yeah. So the next question that I'd like to ask about is what's holding you back? What, what are, you know, we want to provide the mm -hmm. support and empower our, our faculty to be successful, do the work that they find most meaningful. Right. What, what, what's holding you back? Mm. In general, I'd say I've been very fortunate, right? I've, I've been able to have access to grants and, you know, a salary. Like, that's radical. Like, the idea that a, a poet can have a salary that supports her work is a radical thing in, in the market as it is. Um, but I have, you know, I have a lot of dreams around sort of collaborative teaching, large curatorial projects that bring poetry into, you know, the living rooms and kitchens. And, like, I imagine Cal being in elementary schools and middle schools, bringing poetry to the center of people's lives everywhere. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that we have the people for it yet. Mm -hmm. I, think, I think what's holding me back from being a poet um, who is socially oriented, who is oriented to a broader understanding of education is... Is more colleagues. I think mm -hmm. we need to be hiring um, more writers, um, and we need to be doing that soon. Mm -hmm. um, I would, I would love to be able to hang out and and realize these dreams with colleagues. Yeah, yeah. I think you've also asked the next question, which answered the <laughs> next question, which I ask as well. How I, how can I help you? But I, I very much hear your desire for more colleagues doing the kind of transformative work that, mm -hmm. that you're doing, and it's definitely my hope and plan to garner the resources we need to yeah. bring bring more colleagues doing this work right. um, here and to and to create the college as a destination for people who want to do the kind of work that's transformative and yeah. most meaningful. That's right. And I'm really I've been so glad to, you know, have you as a person to have those conversations with. You've been really open about uh, about these conversations and I think we have so much evidence about what, for what can happen when three colleagues from a group and, I mean, the Women of Color Initiatives yeah. is amazing evidence for what can happen when three people put their minds together and their histories together. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm really looking forward to the day where we can do that with creative writing here yeah. um, as well. Yeah. Well, thank you for <laughs> joining us on the Liberal Arts Endeavor. Oh, it was such a pleasure. Thanks, Chris. Thanks.
Additionally, I just want to add a little bit about our upcoming signature lecture, which is going to take place on April 9th at 7 p.m. at uh, Ericsson Kiva um, on our campus. We are delighted this year to be hosting Claudia Rankin at Michigan State University as our esteemed speaker on this day. Claudia is an internationally renowned poet, MacArthur genius, Lennon and Guggenheim fellow, and she's also the chancellor for the Academy of American Poets. She was born in Kingston, Jamaica, and is currently the Frederick Eisman Professor of Poetry at Yale University. Many of us came to her work um, by reading the incredible, moving, searing, really eye-opening book, Citizen, an American Lyric. Um, this book documents and gives really urgent voice to the micro and macro racist aggressions that occur throughout the social and political fabric of the United States. What I've really admired about Claudia's work is the way she is using language to bring attention, national attention, to police violence against black folk, the way she is using images and stories about everyday things, sports, popular culture, to help us understand systemic racial prejudice against especially targeted groups, indigenous, black, and Latinx individuals, the way she opens up our eyes to historical transgenerational traumas that affect us deeply in our flesh, the way she can really help us question our own roles in making a better, more equitable society by shedding light on implicit bias in our everyday situations at work, at play, at home, at a restaurant, at the store. And of course, we've already been hosting Claudia Rankin's collaboration with the documentary filmmaker John Lucas at the MSU Broad Art Museum through the exhibit of Situations, uh, which is up now and ongoing through May 2020. The Situation videos address the vexed myth of a post-racial United States by foregrounding the public and private experience of black Americans. Claudia and John have talked about being inspired to document these experiences of racism, of exclusion, of, of violence of many kinds because they turn into situations that resonate within us, not only as people, but as citizens of this country. And at MSU, we really wanted to probe and celebrate this word, citizen, especially at the College of Arts and Letters, where the heart of our purpose is education that drives towards a more equitable, inclusive society, a society that is built for all of us. And at the heart of that heart is the question of who today even counts as a citizen. We're actively thinking about this question in over 20 classrooms this semester, where they are teaching Claudia Rankin and John Lucas's work. And we're also celebrating the ways in which our truly brilliant, critical, and dissenting creative students are thinking about this question, who is a citizen? So I'd like our audience to look out for the winners of the Who is a Citizen contest. The video work and poems and performances of our students will be featured at the Broad Art Museum starting the week of April 6th. And we and will also be open to a community vote um, by all visitors to the Broad for weeks after that. So do come by and vote for the art that truly resonates with you and the art that helps you examine who counts as a citizen today. And there are many other events that could be of interest to folks who are uh, curious about these themes as well. I just want to highlight a couple. MSU Libraries will be hosting a reading and discussion group around Citizen, led by our brilliant colleagues Rashida Harrison from James Madison College and Leonora Paula from English. And the Creative Writing and Film programs will also be organizing a masterclass in which students can learn firsthand about how to make textual and video art from John Lucas and our signature lecture speaker, Claudia Rankin. 
So yeah, we are so excited to be able to host Claudia here because her whole oeuvre, her whole career has been dedicated to helping us examine what is at the heart, what is at the center of an education in the arts and letters. The question of how writing, how art can help us transform this world into one that has equitable space for all of us. A big thank you to everyone involved with this podcast, including our technical producer, Dan Trago, our marketing director and producer, Ryan Kilcoyan, and our interns, Dante Smith and Anya Delan. You can access every episode of the Liberal Arts Endeavor podcast online at go.cal.msu.edu forward slash podcast. The opinions expressed on this program do not reflect official entities of Michigan State University. See you next time on Liberal Arts Endeavor.